Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Paul Rogers, partner at Bain and leader in the organisational practice. Paul, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So the reason that I asked you to come on, on the podcast was you wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review some time ago called Who's Got the D? Mm-hmm. And this was referenced by another of my guests, Nikki Gattenby, who wrote the book Super Engaged uh, about her how her company has sort of smashed uh, the whole engagement, employee engagement paradigm to create a super engaged company. And she references Who's Got the D in her book as a really important aspect of how she's achieved that and this yeah, clarity in decision making. Mm. And as before we came on the show, you were kind of interested that this article still has has resonance. And mm. what, when I discovered it, it was written by a Bain partner, I suppose that was surprising in itself. I had that this stereotype of men in dark suits with spreadsheets coming to cut the jobs, not mm. Not sort of paragons of employee empowerment, but yet reading that article, I was I, I could see how the power that the, these ideas could have in terms of creating uh, empowerment and and indeed employee engagement in organisations. So it started to make sense mm-hmm. having having read through it. That's the that's the context. But should we just talk a little bit about what what was in that paper? And yeah, we sure. Can so we we can come to the Bain stereotypes later, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean this all. This all had its origins back in the 80s when, um, when Bain was doing organizational work. And one of the things that we found just through empirical use was, was the most practical, was a way of helping provide clarity on decision making and decision authorities. And then as we, as we grew as a firm and as we started a formal organization practice, which I was lucky enough to be asked to lead, to found and, and lead, um, we were looking for kind of what would be what would be really practical, and and actually this emphasis on decision effectiveness was was what was what we found, and and this was mu- much less based on sort of research in the lab and much more based on practical working with clients, and the problem that we observe then and observe now is that in any large organisation it doesn't it doesn't have to be a business it can be a charity or I mean any any large organisation. Um, you move from a model where decisions are, it's obvious who's, you know, what the decisions are and who's supposed to make them because it's a small group and you're used to working together. And eventually, you're, if you're successful, you get bigger and it becomes less obvious. Um, and, and it's this ambiguity, as much as anything, that, that can cripple even the, even the best meaning organizations. And so the, the sort of dark forces of bureaucracy and you know the sort of existential angst that people often feel inside large organizations i mean there are many root causes but one of the most significant and addressable we find is that it's just not clear who's actually supposed to be involved in a decision or who has the authority to to make it and so that article was sort of a a response to that problem and 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 kind of the core really of what we thought was and, and still and still find to be an effective way of, of improving not only organizational effectiveness but as you say the whole experience of what it means to be human if if I can use that phrase inside a large organization you know what is it that you are actually empowered to do what are you supposed to be involved in you know where are you actually accountable for mm. for making something happen yeah and and in this paper, you you laid out this rapid 
Rapid. framework. Exactly. Yeah. Well done. You've done your homework. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is that and is that still something you stand by? Is that are you still very much so? So again, that? the origins of Rapid are actually lost in the mists of time. I first came across it in about 1988, and and it was it was given to me. I was doing some organisational work. Maybe it was even 1990 in the post Thatcher privatisation utility world. And a lack of accountability was had been diagnosed as a big issue. And I was honestly casting around a little bit for how to really think about that. And a, a third party, um, a not BAME person, a third party organizational consultant that we had a, a kind of relationship with in the US. And I was led, you know, led to um, as an expert in the in the firm, produced this what, what was then RAID um, acronym. And so we used it with this client and it, and it proved to be super effective. And so we started using it with other clients and it kind of grew organically from there. And although this was long before the digital age, um, this kind of went viral inside Bain and started because, just because it was working and <laughs> because clients were finding it useful. And so, and so then um, when we sat down to, as I said, around the turn of the millennium to, um, to create something more formalized in terms of a Bain organizational practice. And it was obvious that RAID had to be at the heart of it. But we also realized as we sort of reflected that, um, that there was a missing element from RAID and, and um, not to get too technical, but we added the P at that point. And, and that was partly because it gave us a cute, acronym. Um, and, and the concept of speed is actually quite relevant when it comes to decisions. Um, but it was also because the P stands for perform uh, which is making making the decision happen, and you know again it's a cliche perhaps, but self evidently the best decision only creates any value when it when it gets well executed, um, and and so raid pre pre the p pre pre rapid didn't have that important step. Okay, and so step us through the the acronym then. And yeah, the so so the key po- there are sort of two key points perhaps. So as the article implies, it can often not be clear who has the d. And so what can happen very often is most organizations or many organizations are migrating from a kind of historic command and control type, more directive structure to something more uh, collaborative and empowered. Um, but But they know what they're moving away from. They don't necessarily know what they're moving to. And so what can very often happen is it's just not clear who actually is empowered to make a decision. And so the decision kind of circles round in an ever increasing circle and more and more people get involved and you end up with a kind of lowest con- common denominator outcome and everybody uh, or many people get frustrated because you know the outcome isn't the one they wanted and and the whole thing just takes a lot more energy and it kind of saps the will again going back to the what it feels like to be mm. to be part of that um, so who has the D is a very simple <laughs> question, and and if there's any decision, you know you can obviously do this prescriptively as part of a kind of design, but it can also become a very powerful kind of ad hoc, um, and 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 actually inside Bain quite often we if we if we've got a decision to make we'll sit around at the beginning and say well who's who's got the D for this. And then and then it's important that everyone else respects that and provides their input to that person or possibly a, a sort of a group, um, and then that group exercises that authority in a responsible way. But it's, but it's quite liberating to know that there is someone whose job it is <laughs> to say that the discussion's over now, we're actually going to do this. Right. Um, so that's the who has the D part. But the other roles are very important too, because as I said, mostly this is designed for organizations moving away from a directive model. And so simply 
clarifying who has the D doesn't really, you know, it only takes you so far. And so the other um, letters stand, the R stands for recommend. So very often, if, it, if it's a decision of significance, um, we, we are strong believers at Bain, as you pointed out, in facts and analysis. So somebody needs to get the facts and do the analysis um, as the basis for a recommendation. Then you have the I and the A, and the, uh, the I stands for input, and the A stands for agree. And the difference between those two things is the agree is a, is a much stronger form and, and implicitly or even explicitly is, is effectively a veto power on the recommendation, whereas the I is the weaker form and is not a veto. So the, you know, the, it's kind of obligatory for somebody who has the R to consult somebody who has an I, but they don't necessarily have to reflect that person's input. Whereas if they're consulting someone who, ha who has an A and, and that person is not on board, then the thing can't go forward. Um, and very often the A is reserved for like a legal input. You know, you can't mm -hmm. do this because it's mm -hmm. illegal rather than a pure opinion. But that's part of the magic of how you actually deploy. The... So, so those are the, you, you know, there's a recommendation, which, which again with a complicated decision is both assembling the facts um, discussing with people who have, have an I and people with an A if there are any, and then putting a recommendation forward to whoever it is who has the D, which then the, rec the decision gets made, and, and then the person or people who have the P get it done. Right. So that's the model. The, the risk of getting too technical and too sort of wound up in this, um, there's an important issue as well in the kind of real world that the veto is on the recommendation, not on the decision. And so if, and again, you find this, but I mean, the, the tool is designed to allow the right collaborative and constructive debate to emerge with the best overall answer. But if you get a logjam and, and somebody with an A and somebody with an R simply can't agree, then there's nothing stopping a decision going up to the person who has the D knowing that somebody else wants to veto it. And then they're empowered to decide what what should actually happen. So, okay. Because again, the, the whole purpose of this is to provide clarity to allow good decisions to be made quickly with the right amount of effort um, and then properly executed because, you know, the, the, the decisions are good because the right people have been involved and the decisions are, and the execution is good because the right people have been involved. Um, so that's the, that's the notion. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I can just think of, situations in my own life and client situations where yeah there's an anxiety associated with not being clear who's got the final call and yeah. how to get to that final call and this this sense of my recommendations have gone into some kind of black hole yeah exactly so that you can i mean it's it's the usual damned if you do damned if you don't you know if if um if it's not clear who has the d then you can go on this fruitless search for consensus. Well, it's not necessarily fruitless, but it, it, it can be counterproductive because it takes an enormous amount of energy. And, and as I said, very often you can find decisions are watered down to sort of what you can get past people rather than being the decision that is, that is actually what's needed. It takes a lot more time. It takes a lot more energy. Everybody feels a bit frustrated at the end of it. That, that's the sort of that's the, or, or, but at least you get there with the lowest common denominator, or you don't get there. It just circles round and round, and nothing happens because nobody actually feels able to to stand up and 
and sort of close the debate. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it's very much designed to. I mean, it's perhaps worth adding the the another level on the sort of journey that we see a lot of organizations going on. So, so as I said, you know, command and control is a very respected or respectable management model, right? I mean, it's kind of how human history began uh, post-agricultural. I mean, anthropology, I think, is dominated by those kinds of models once agriculture came on the scene. So, I mean, it's not as if command and control is, is a fad, right? But in today's world, for lots of reasons that we can explore if you want, but I'll, I won't right now, um, it, it, for most decisions and in most organizational contexts, it's not the winning model. Um, and so, as I say, most large institutions, organizations are moving beyond that to something more collaborative. The problem is what? We, we again, we use a sort of model that has three steps beyond directive or command and control. So one is what we call participative, where it's very clear that a single person usually or a single group has the D, but there's a consultative approach before exercising the D. There's then, uh, I get these always the wrong way around, um, there's then um, democratic, where a bunch of people are involved and it's kind of one person, one vote. And then there's consensus, where absolutely the, nothing happens unless everyone agrees. And, and the problem is very often people know what, as I said, they're moving from, which is the, um, the more directive model, mm. but they don't really know what they're moving to, so they kind of overshoot. And they, and they end up with a kind of consensus. Everybody says we're not really looking for consensus, but they kind of are um, without, without really thinking. And that's where the problem comes. And so where rapid can be very helpful, especially in, if the desired sort of house style for decisions is participative, rapid really gives some shape to those different roles that I talked about and, and allows you know, more discussion where it's needed. I mean, it's not like every decision. I mean, some of these decisions actually need to go around a few times because they're complicated and it's just not obvious what you should do. Mm. And, and actually there's, you know, not, although, although we see speed as an important aspect of winning in business or, or probably winning in many other spheres, speed for its own sake is not what we're talking about. So sometimes it's, it, 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 the right answer is not to make a decision, but to have more discussion. But right. even then you need someone who's sort of, t you know, making that, making that conscious decision rather than that just being an, un an unintended consequence of, of the lack of clarity of who's in power to make a decision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, because there's, there's some yeah. intent behind the discussions. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 yeah, And similarly, even if, um, you know, not every, not every decision, I mean, some decisions should, should be consensus and some decisions should be directive. So, so for example, if, um, if a fire, if I happen to spot a fire over in the corner there, right, the right answer for me is not to say, what do you guys think? Should we, what do you think we should do? It's to say, fire, let's get out, <laughs> right? I mean, it's a directive situation and it requires a directive response. Yeah. You know, yeah. similarly, I, 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 nothing comes into my head, but, but it wouldn't be too hard to think of decisions which should be consensus. Yeah. You know, and, and it's and they should be for whatever reason, but it's just important that they should be. So, so one, you know, the rapid tool doesn't predetermine that it has to be one person who decides. That's just most often the most practical approach, so long as that person is exercising that responsibility in a collaborative fashion. Yeah, and that people know. I mean, that's the really important. And that people point. know. Yeah, and and the fact that you talk about 
starting meetings with that just seems like you've, yeah. you've got to that point where it's so ingrained in the culture now. Where well, I mean, again, you have to be careful, right? Like any tool, you can overdo it. And I've been guilty of this with clients, actually, um, where you, you sort of try and create yards and yards of paperwork to anticipate every decision and who should be involved and so on. And, and you can, you know, if you overuse the tool, like, like many tools, it can actually get in the way. But so, so in many ways, the best use is that you, you kind of reserve it for where, where there is genuine ambiguity and it's actually useful yeah. to, um, to clarify. Right, <clears throat> okay. And, and quickly on the P, so the P is the perform is who's going to yeah, execute, execute it. it. Yeah, yeah it's just it. we had to have P to fit the rapid. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a bit clunky. Yeah, no, but I, no, I, I get it. And, and so tell us a, a couple of examples of where you've seen this go into organizations, you know, what's been the impact and, and what, have, what have been the challenges in getting them? I mean, okay, so there, I mean, I know the article's old, but there are some uh, um, case studies referenced in the article that, that I'm able to talk about because yeah. you know one of the things about Bain is we don't talk about our clients unless they've given us permission, and those companies did in the article. Um, but le le let me start at the general level. So, so I think there are two big issues, and again, I'm very mindful of the being human sort of framing, which I, I strongly uh, agree with. So, so, you know, it's kind of left brain, right brain, right? So the, th the thing that can often go wrong inside large organizations, like I said several times already, is lack of clarity. It's just not clear. So rapid is a left brain and, you know, somewhat analytic solution to that problem. But that is the easy bit. You know, that is the 20%, not the 80% of the problem. The, the issue is human behavior around that, right? So putting on a piece of paper that person X has a D and person Y has, a, has an I, can be very helpful, but unless those people are kind of engaging with whatever the decision is in, in, the, in the spirit in which it's intended, it doesn't get you all that far. So the human behavior side, I, you know, if I were writing that article again, and I have written others since that, that do this, um, I would probably upweight a lot the sort of behavioral aspect of what it means to, to be human and to apply the rapid because even when we wrote the article, we weren't so naive as to think that writing it on a piece of paper solves the problem. It's just the first step in, in, in sort of helping solve yeah. the problem. And as I think about that, I've certainly been in situations where people have got the, the RAID logs, not the RAPID logs, yeah. where they've <clears throat> articulated some of, some of these aspects of, of a process, but then they're just sort of stuffed in a corner and, and it doesn't necessarily alleviate, as you say, the, the, the ambiguity and, the, and, yeah. the, and, well, not the ambiguity so much, but the, the anxiety about actually getting decisions yeah, made. Yeah, you have to say. live the spirit, not yeah. just the letter. Yeah. Um, no pun intended. Um, and the execution point. So um, we, we have this, we think, cute um, sort of metaphor for bringing that to life. So here it is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it live on camera with you. So the, the metaphor is this, three frogs are sitting on a log, okay? One decides to jump off, how many are left? Three. You got it, well, you're, you're good. Um, yeah, exactly, because deciding isn't, doesn't, do, doesn't achieve anything until you've actually done it, right? The answer I most often get, I never get two, the answer I most often get is zero because people know it's a trick question and they kind of rationalize and they, and they usually rationalize that the, the guy, the frog jumps and the log rolls and then the other. But anyway, yeah, exactly. You, you're on the money. Right. And so that's the important part of uh, recognizing that it, that there's a performance. Yeah, the first thing is you. making a good decision yeah. and that's what you need the raid for. And the second part is executing it quickly and well. Yeah. 
and that's what the P is all about. Yeah. But the way you made it is sort of preconditions how well it's likely to be executed. In, right. Again, in a world where usually there are multiple people, often from multiple kind of organizational units, functions, or geographies, or whatever it might be, who who need to be involved yeah. in, in in executing. And if they need to be involved in executing, then they probably need some input into the decision itself. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, well, that's interesting because that that's I suppose a motif through a lot of the business agility now, sort of the right. whole the whole that whole wave right. of, of of shifting organisations. And we've had a lot of you know, agile gurus on this show. Yeah, uh, is this idea of involving all the people who are impacted downstream as far upstream as well? As, yeah. As so possible. so this is very relevant. So so again, rapid is just a tool. You can apply it to any decision. You can apply it to what sandwich you're going to have for lunch just as much as am I going to make a multi-billion dollar acquisition. Um, and one of the things we found very early, actually, is it's just as relevant, not, not necessarily to the sandwich decision, but to the sort of frontline operational decisions. So you asked for some examples. Let, let me give you one that actually wasn't in the article. Um, so many years ago now, we worked for one of the big mining companies in South Africa, as it happened. And the, the thing we were asked them to help them on was their safety, their operational safety in the mines, because they did not have a good safety record. And, you know, people were dying. And, uh, you know, people were dying, people were getting injured. I mean, this was pretty serious stuff. And the hypothesis going in, their hypothesis, and, and I have to say ours, was that this is a question of policy. You know, they needed to, we needed to help them benchmark world-class safety policies and align. So we did. And what we found is their policies were already world class. <laughs> the problem wasn't the policy. The problem was the application of the policy. And it was actually the individual decisions that their kind of frontline mining employees were making to disregard, in effect, the, the policy. So, you know, for example, the policy would say you shouldn't go in the mine shaft if the machine is, is switched on and people would, would do that. And then the machine would start and they would, you know, something horrible would happen. So then we had to kind of work back from that and say, well, why are those people making decisions that are putting their own safety at risk? And what, what is it that can be done to, to change the environment in which they're, they're doing that? And without getting into all the details, that proved to be a much more fertile line of inquiry. And, you know, it seems obvious with the benefit of hindsight, but it wasn't going in. So a lot of these people were illiterate. So giving them a safety manual and saying, you know, you know, read this <laughs> wasn't going to work. This was, you know, not long after the end of apartheid. There was still a lot of racism. Most of the frontline supervisors were white. Most all of the of the frontline workers were black. You know, there wasn't as much uh, concern for their welfare on the part of the frontline supervisors as there needed to be, which had a very dramatic effect on how how the company then started to think about that role and who to put in that role and what kind of uh, training to equip them with and so on. And the, um, the one that I always enjoy the most is what we also found was that the frontline employees themselves were, even when they knew the policy, were kind of disregarding it because they felt like they wanted to get more shift time. And so they would cut corners in order to maximize shift time because that would maximize their earnings and, and, and what they could send home to the family and so on. And one of the most powerful interventions that the client then made was to send, was to go to the communities where these guys came from. They were all guys. 
and talk to their wives and their mothers about the importance of safety. And, and through that, um, sort of put pressure, if you like, or, or educate them on, on putting their life and their, and their safety ahead of you know, short-term shift considerations. And, and that was very effective. And, and in fact, you know, the story had a very happy ending because these changes worked and the safety record improved dramatically. And what was interesting was so did productivity because they were, they, they were having less you know, downtime. Through mm. when an accident happens, obviously the whole mm -hmm. operation has to stop while they figure yeah. out what what it is that, that's caused it. And so, in fact, productivity improved, and these guys started earning more anyway. Um, but the, again, this was an example of a you know not a big strategic sort of bet the business decision, but something you might think mundane in some ways, which is just the everyday decisions that the that the mine workers were making about their own safety. But it but it turned out to be very fruitful to take a sort of the, the, the other end of the telescope and, and think about that decision and what was motivating them to think and act in the ways they were. So, so your, your starting inquiry was, how are you making this decision? Or the starting, we, we have this concept, and again, I'm sorry, some of this may be a bit jargony, but, um, but we, we talk about decision architecture. Okay, so okay. decision architecture, is, it's, a, it's a way of thinking about, like, like you have a kind of skeleton of a tall building, the decision architecture is the skeleton of an organization. Um, and, and in many ways, again, it's a cliche, but a we would say an organization is the sum of the decisions it makes and executes. And the great thing about a decision architecture is you can sort of zoom up or zoom down and you can think of c categories of decisions and then you can get down to an individual decision. And it's not manageable to operate at the level of, you know, any, any large organization is making and executing millions of decisions every day. And you can't, you know, design that in, but you you can zoom in where you need to, and and that's what happened here, right? So the the broad category was operational safety, but then what we realised is when out of all the possible decisions we could have looked at, it was the decision that the frontline worker was making on how on on whether or not to comply with safety policy. Once we realised that safety policy was actually pretty good, the question became compliance and what was inhibiting compliance mm. and that's and that's not something you dictate from the top you know they've done everything they could to dictate it from the top yeah that's something that was happening across thousands of employees every single shift yeah well that's so, so that and it reminds me of something that resonated in the article and you talk in the article about how actually it's the decision making important decision making process may be more important than the organizational structure absolutely yeah and i think this this idea yeah. of a decision architecture actually really resonates and yes if yeah. you think about an organization as a as the sum of conversations or indeed the sum of the decisions it makes then actually thinking about it in that it's, lens it's very aligned with way. agile and you know yeah. holocratic yeah. and all those new terms and and you know some there's some fresh thinking in those things but the fundamental thinking is exactly what you just said that decisions don't recognize organizational boundaries and and organizational boundaries can be a huge problem actually and and very often when as the article says when when you think about where are the main pain points that stop organizations just automatically being great at, for, at what we're talking about, um, structural barriers are, are amongst the biggest. And, and increasingly in today's world of ecosystems, it's structural barriers across functions or divisions within the company, but it's also between the company and its ecosystem partners. But, it, but for <laughs> me, it's the structural barriers where they somehow interfere or have an impact on the 
on the decision making process. Well, they do for lots of reasons, right? So, so again, each situation is in some ways uh, unique, and in, uh, yeah, but there's a lot of patterns, and and we see lots of. Um, challenges with organization with decisions that cross organizational boundaries and again they're sort of left brain right brain you know very often if the if 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 the decision needs to involve multiple people but they're not in the same physical geography by definition it's just harder to and you know in today's homeworking and hot desking and all that it's it's harder to get just get people around a table and talk about something than it used to be and again maybe technology helps to some degree but, but fundamentally, it's harder. Um, you know, second, people get territorial. They just do. Uh, it's something inside all of us. Uh, you know, you, you belong to a tribe, within a tribe, within a tribe. And, um, and so if you're from function A and I'm from function B, for, you know, even though we're working in ostensibly to the same end goal, we, we will have some, you know, conscious or unconscious prejudices which are not the same. Which will which will get in the way of a truly, you know, analytically pure decision. Um, and then the way organisations work, what we call the organisational software that surrounds the structure, can compound that. So there there is a, a, a case study that we talk about in the article, which again it's old now, but it, but I think it's instructive. So this was one of the big automotive companies. They were in trouble um, back then. <laughs> they, um, and one of the symptoms of that was when they would bring new models to market, they were always late and, and not very commercially successful. They didn't sell the volumes they expected. They had a lot of pressure on price, et cetera. And, and, when, and so we were asked to help them sort of analyze the root causes so they, could, so they could improve. And we took a decision approach. And what we found was that the two kind of dominant functions in that, in that company that were involved in creating a new model and bringing it to mar market were the engineers who designed the vehicle and the marketeers who took it to market and sold it. Um, and firstly, it wasn't clear, but for, for many of the key decisions, and again, we took it down to a relatively practical, concrete level. So the example that always sticks in my mind is should power steering be standard on the vehicle and included in the price, or should it be an option that the customer could choose and pay more for if they wanted? And um, and what we found is that the engineers, first of all, thought they had authority to make that decision, and the marketers thought they had. So in fact, it would have been better if one or other clearly did. It didn't. It almost didn't matter which, but. Yeah. They both did. And secondly, the incentives that they were, that that organisation was using for those departments were different and reinforced conflict rather than collaboration. So the um, the marketeers were measured almost entirely on sales volume, and the engineers were measured on profit. And so that kind of hardwired into the power steering decision that the engineers would want it to be an extra because that would generate extra revenue. And the marketeers would want it to be standard because assuming no change to the vehicle price, they would presumably sell more vehicles if mm. the power steering. And so, you know, without anyone intending, obviously, we ha you had this disconnect. And this was replicated over dozens and dozens of design decisions that had to be made. And you could predict what, um, what each party was going to want based on their incentives. And then, and then that sort of ossified over time into a 
a lack of trust, really, and a, a lack of even respect across the department, such that any decision like that, that both sides came into it expecting it to be a confrontational sort of negotiation rather than a let's look at the facts, let's look at, you know, whether customers want power steering <laughs> to be standard or whatever, and, and then let's do the, let's run the numbers on whether we're better off as a company, you know, yeah. with it one way or the other way. Yeah. And, and, and as you talk, I can, I can really see the, the value of this because often we think about, like, say, like a value chain map, right? Yeah. And look at where yeah. value is added over the cycle of an organization. But that's a very left brain activity when I think about yeah. it, right? And you think about, well, where are the handoffs and where, where, where do things get blocked down this, this flow? But that's a, yes, it is a, a highly analytical sort of engineering view yes. of the organization. Yes. But what you're talking about recognizes tribes and politics. Well, yeah. And, 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 and maybe somebody officially has the D, but in reality, who's, who's resisting that? Exactly. And, and who's supposed yeah. to get consulted and doesn't get consulted? It just seems to be like a, yeah, a more human yes, exactly. oriented way. So of, again, of it, doing start, work. it does start with, I mean, the decision architecture doesn't look very different to a value chain map, right? And again, you, the left brain has a role, right? You ha otherwise, it's just chaos. Um, so, but the point is that's the beginning, not the end, right? And, and if the, unless the behaviors match. So, so the design part can be quite left brain. Again, you have to be a bit selective. If you try and do it for every decision, you go mad. Um, <laughs> and generally, we find 15 to 25 is enough. You don't, you know, not every decision is equal in terms of its importance. And not every decision is equal in terms of its complexity and how much sort of pain it's causing inside an organization. And definitely, if, and generally, if you redesign around somewhere between 15 to 25, you get an enormous effect. And then you get that, what we were talking about earlier, people start using the rapid approach more situationally for other decisions rather than having to have a sort of manual. Um, but, uh, well, I think I made my... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, people people get used to, I suppose, consciously and explicitly talking about this. Oh, I know. Sorry, I know what. Yeah. I, what I, yeah. So, so then the point you were making, behaviours. So, so you know, you can map using the left brain, but in a targeted way, a handful of decisions that can really make a difference because it provides clarity to people. But then the challenge is aligning behaviours and getting consistency, and as I said earlier, getting people to embrace the spirit, not just the letter. And if it if it becomes an exercise in power. And you know, I want the D on this, and and, I, and once I've got it, I don't, you know, I, the, then obviously that's not going to work. And and this, but the human side again. I mean, that's the reality in many large organisations. You know, even though people aren't necessarily quick to admit it, but recognising that and, and thinking about how to change that environment where people feel obliged to act in a sort of power politics way. That's that can then be another whole area in order to get the thing working effectively. So again, yeah. just, just assigning the roles doesn't guarantee that behavior will yeah. align. But that feels like that's where a lot of the real, I mean, sometimes maybe it is just a left brain activity and just with a few maps, you get some shift. But I, I'm guessing a lot of the time when you engage in this way, you do find that a lot of the work goes into more yeah. of this subtle yeah, the culture. work around it's the Essentially the culture, yeah. um, you know, the leadership behaviors, or, yeah, yeah, the, and, the human side. <laughs> yeah, and so if you're working with a client to embody the spirit of this, what, what, where do you tend to focus uh, your efforts in terms of working with people to, to take this on? Well, it, I mean, 
it's hard to give a short answer because yeah. there are just many different situations. Or but even... but the you know the principles would be firstly be clear what matters in terms of which decisions. Like I said earlier, not not all decisions are equal on those two dimensions of, of kind of impact and um, complexity or, 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 or the kind of stress they may be causing today. So take some time to figure out which are the decisions that are going to that if you're able to improve them are actually going to make the biggest difference. And then kind of deep dive on those. And generally, the second step is then to, to deploy rapid. And, and even to do that in a consultative way, co-creating with the people who are going to live the roles. <laughs> There's an example in the article from British American Tobacco, which, um, which embraced this in a big way back in the mid-90s when it was kind of trying to create a, a single global organization from what had been four much more decentralized ones. Um, and it's actually very important that the people who are going to have to live the roles, or, or at least it can be very beneficial that the people who are going to have to live the roles are part of designing them. And then the third part is think about the, the behavioral kind of triggers that the organization is putting in place and whether they are helping the spirit or getting in the way of the spirit. And, and uh, without going through all the details, we have a model that has sort of the 10 different elements of an effective organization and depending on that situation, then some of those 10 are probably going to be helping and others are going to be hindering. And you need to take a custom approach to what it is. So to make that a bit more real, in the we talked a few minutes ago about the automotive example. Mm. So in their case, it was very clear that incentives were a big problem. That was yeah. on the 10. The way they mm. were measuring and rewarding success for the two functions in these, in, in these decision areas was a big problem. And changing that, we, you know, was going to have a big impact, hopefully, and and it did. We we, we came up with, or they came up with a, a harmonised set of metrics to assess both functions on, on a kind of single view of, of, of success, and and that helped a lot to then take the tensions away. Right. Yeah. So it's a multifaceted approach. Yeah. You know, depending. And, on and then behind it. that, obviously, is the broader leadership and and sort of. Um, let me call it cultural uh, work that you can do, which isn't as specifically focused on the individual decisions that you may have, um, you know, that, that I talked about earlier. You pick your 15 to 25, but, but is more the, the broader context in which the organization works. And, and if the organization is a kind of testosterone-fueled, um, alpha male-driven um, kind of constant war of attrition, the um, solving for rapids isn't going to solve that. So you need to do, you know, other things that will solve for that. And, and then hopefully the, the rapids work that you do is, will have a much bigger yield if you're successful in addressing those, those broader behavioral challenges. Right. Yeah. I tell you what it reminds me of. Have you come across the book um, Turn the Ship Around by David Marquette? I haven't. No. So he, this is a story of a, of a submarine captain in the US Navy who takes the submarine the submarine that he's in charge of from bottom of the US fleet to the top, I think in the in space of a year or something. But one of the things he starts with is the is the process for deciding leave, right, for the, for the people on the sub. Uh, and he changes the number of people who have to approve the leave requests. And, and I think it starts off as being like something ridiculous, like five people have to sign off for one person to take some leave. And he gets, I think, it down to one. But, he st but it, it sounds very similar to what you're describing. And 
that that then kind of unlocked a whole culture change within the yes. submarine yes. because suddenly these people are empowered, the sort of supervisor level, yeah. you know, it's one tick and they can give their people leave. Right. And then and then that and that kind of creates momentum around well what other what else can we simplify in our decision making process? No, it's a great the, example. The point, yeah. And it, it's a great example of, uh, of maybe two things. One is figuring out, you know, intuitively or otherwise, a particular decision that was going to have big impact, even mm. though it might seem like a very mundane decision. And that, which, going back to what I said earlier, that very often the decisions that have the big impact are quite close to the front line. They're mm. not. They're not the boardroom decision. Yeah. Um, and second, um, kind of almost creating the symbolism around tackling a few things well that, that then unlocks the behavioral, the, the mindset change and the behavioral change. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it does sound like a good example. Yeah, and they, and they ended up with this situation where they've got, I mean, he's now coined it this intent-based leadership where um, the, the idea is that I just, that, that anybody in the ship, wherever they are in hierarchy, is, you know, I intend to do X. Uh, and, and so they're kind of doing rapid all in one, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're signaling the fact they're making this decision. They're giving the people opportunity yeah. to provide input. Uh, or to, to veto in some cases, uh, and then and then they go ahead and they and then they describe what it is they're doing to the P in your yes, lexicon, exactly. right? No, the, 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 no, it sounds like a very good fit. I mean, you know, the, um, the a lot of there's a lot of talk about empowerment. There has yeah. been a lot of talk about empowerment for a long time, but what what does that mean? So rapid lends itself very well to clarifying, you know, what you are empowered to do and what and what you aren't. And one of my clients a long time ago talked about a different metaphor which was he called um, the hourglass organization where you know when you look at when you look at the decision architecture that when you look at the world through a, the lens of, a, of decisions what you find is generally the decisions that matter one of two things has to happen they either have to go all the way to the top or very close and and, and be centralized because they're either super complicated and important um, and, and the expertise to really get the facts and analyze it is not going to be available in lots of places um, or they need to go the other way right <laughs> there's the hourglass um, okay. so that you, what they what you don't want is them coming up and getting stuck in the middle or, or going through through successive layers that aren't adding value and so the whole in many ways the whole kind of agile revolution is a recognition of that and sort of turning things around and saying look these decisions actually belong down close to the customer close to the frontline operator wherever it is and and what we're going to do is create an organizational structure and and sort of talent profile that has the skill and the will to tackle those decisions real time, rather than through some successive layers of management model. I mean, that's you know that sounds great, and it's kind of quite scary, especially if you happen to be one of those middle managers. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's not much in the middle yeah, of the hourglass. Yeah, but that's what's happening in yes. in the world, and and so the answer is um, don't be a middle manager, be um, an expert at something. You know, stay very close and relevant to the either the operations or the customer side of the business, uh, but but don't be a, a you know a, a sort of link in a chain. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Right. There are some great examples. What one of my colleagues called Fred Reichelt, and he's sort of the father of loyalty, or sometimes called. He he wrote various books in the eighties on customer loyalty, and then that that morphed into employee loyalty, and and, and these are quite linked concepts. And he talks, for example, about um, linchpin employees which are very often frontline supervisors, like one level or two levels above the actual frontline. And they can have just a differential impact on the performance of an organization, both in terms of its output, but also 
the environment, what it feels like to be part of it. Um, and and recognizing that and then incent, you know, finding people with the profile to exercise authority that close to the front line and then re rewarding them appropriately can have a huge impact on, like I said, both things, both the, the um, business outcomes that that, that that team generates, but also what it feels like to be part of that team. And your submarine captain reminds me a lot of that. It's, it's a lot about recognizing the potential of the individuals and then, and then letting them grow within you know, within some finite boundaries, but usually broader than the rule book originally said you could have. Yeah, reminds me of the story of Favi, which I think is in the Frederick Lelou book, Reinventing Organizations. I don't know. If you're I, aware I have of. I have read it. Yeah, yeah. a long time ago, admittedly. I think it's yeah, I think it's in that book. But he, uh, but they talk about um, so these are these are workers, steel workers in a motor repairs outfit in France, right? They, they manufacture. Um, not, not repairs, um, parts, motor parts manufacturer. And they buy the, they, they're, they're dealing with banks and they're spot buying, I think, iron or steel for the, for the, for the manufacturing plant. And so the, the, the one minute they're sort of on a lathe, you know, creating some, I don't know, carburetor or something. And the next minute they're on the phone to a broker at JP Morgan, you know, buying, metal for the plant, right? And I, t I think that's a wonderful example yeah. of just, yeah. I suppose, how far we can stretch this in terms yeah. of who we give the D to, yeah, right? exactly. But then you need, you know, the, I'm a big advocate of the skill will sort of construct for talent. And you do need people who have the skill to do that, and, or, you, or else you need to help them acquire those skills. And the second thing is you need people who, who, who um, as we said earlier, embrace the spirit of what what this is all about, and don't abuse it. and And so the will aspect is is very important. and, and they they embrace the authority rather than running away from it. Um, and and they um, exercise responsibility rather than you know get power crazed or whatever. And, and so there's a lot of human stuff in how to you know what sounds like a dream can be incredibly powerful, but but you need to take a fairly hard-headed approach to what it takes to, to then make it work. You have to sort of believe in human nature and, the, and human potential, but you don't have to be naive about it. Right. And as you say that, and you talk about the, the, the I suppose, the risks of people becoming power-crazed, which I suppose is a, possibly a broader topic than just, just, just the rapid <laughs> idea. But it just struck me as you were saying that, as you, before we came on air, you talked about Bain has rotational... Rotational leadership. leadership. Now, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I thought yes. it, it interested me when you said that. Again, yeah. it wasn't something I necessarily, you know, expect from, from Brain, rightly or wrongly. So, yeah, t I suppose... Well, yeah, I don't know what about... your preconceptions are about Bain, actually. <laughs> I'm interested to hear more about that. I mean, but on rotational leadership specifically, yeah, this has been a principle. So, so essentially, Bain kind of reinvented itself in 1990. We nearly went bust. Bill, Bill Bain and the founders... Um, left at that time, and so we, we had this incredible opportunity to take a brand that was already a respected brand, but needed a completely different approach to organization and governance and sort of create something. Um, and rotational leadership was one of the core um, sort of principles that was enshrined at that time, and, and I think we've tried pretty hard to live ever, ever since. And so this is the idea that first, first of all, the heroes in the organization are the people who are out there with clients. And, and that 
and so that we don't have a kind of formal administrative set of roles. And even if you're a leader of the, the worldwide firm or, the, or a, a part of the firm like I was, um, you're expected to be out there with clients as well. Um, and also, in some of our roles have formal term limits, but a lot of them don't. But there's an expectation that it's not a, it's a finite period that you should be playing what we call a servant leader role. And it's healthy for you and, and certainly for the organization for there to be rotation. Um, and so it's, it's not, um, you know, it, it's just an expectation that, and, and, you know, depending on the role, then, then maybe how long uh, is the optimal period is a bit different. But generally, we're talking uh, anywhere between three to seven years. I mean, it's not, it's not every six months, um, because obviously then people don't get experience in their roles. But yeah, it's, it's definitely expected that um, those two things are true. You know, we're a client service organization first and foremost, and our brightest and best, and certainly our heroes, are, should be spending the majority of their time helping clients. Right. And, and then secondly, where we have leadership roles, which obviously we do, because we're, we're now a large organization in our own right, um, they should be rotational. Right. And you also mentioned they're not having administrative roles. So it sounds like you're you're sort of actively trying not to build a bureaucracy. Is that right? Yeah, we're, we're certainly actively trying not to do that. I, I mean, I, again, it's easy to sort of make grand statements. I mean, of course, we have some very uh, capable and committed and, um, and important functional people like our general counsel or um, our CFO, or even our CFO, though, is a client-facing partner who's rotated into oh, really? that role. But, but we do have some, full, some important full-time functional roles. However, most of our leadership roles in terms of leading the consulting side of the business, as opposed to the business support roles, that those are the ones I'm talking about with rotational yeah. leadership. Yeah, yeah. Um, and is anything, I mean, I guess not all of these cultural aspects are inspired by Rapid, but it'd just be interesting to understand, like, what, 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 how do you think this is, if any... To, to any extent, shifted the culture within Bain, this, this way of thinking? Um, I mean, certainly we use Rapid a lot internally. I mean, it, 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 I have to think about your question because it's sort of ingrained, really. Um, so I think how much of it has been driven by Rapid, I don't think. So I, I think it's more driven by the, the sort of fundamental thinking and, and self-reflection that went on at this time of great turbulence for us as a firm back at, you know, in the early 90s. Um, but it was more that I think Rapid or Raid, uh, as it started, like for many of our clients, just became a practical tool that, that could help give expression to some of the underlying kind of core principles on which the organization was based. And I already talked about some of those, but, but the idea of um, sort of playing to win and client, client being at front and center, but also the human experience, going back to your being human thing. One of the things we're known for in, the, in our industry is, the, is um, being a great place to work. Um, and that's something that we have put a lot of time and effort into. Um, but in, in general, we, we really try very hard to treat people like people rather than you know, production units. Um, so, so rapid just, uh, and we also believe in making decisions quickly, but in a participative way. We're a partnership. You know, we, um, we believe strongly in a principle that we call partner teaming. 
And and so that again, you know, we've lived all flavors of this, and I'm, of course we've got it wrong plenty of times. But, uh, so it's not that I mean we've lived examples of decisions that go round and round because everybody knows that it, it, we're a partnership, and you know, it, it, for whatever reason, we it, it's just hard to align on a, a decisive um, way forward. So, but generally, we believe in the principle that we need to do that. We need to have people who have clear rapid authority and then they need to exercise that in a responsible participative way and then we need to back them once they've made a decision and so the whilst whilst of course at a, at a practical level we've we've lived many of the pitfalls um the partner teaming and uh, but moving quickly <laughs> um rapid helped us sort of square the circle if you like right. between yeah. those Two things, and it, and it continues to help us do that to this day. I, very often, if we're evolving our own organisation, which obviously we do, we're a living organism like every organisation, uh, metaphorically. Um, very often, somebody will say, "Okay, let's just sort the rapids," and it's kind of like it's not, you know, it's a language that everyone speaks and and everyone buys into. Yeah. <clears throat> now, and it. As you speak there, the other thing, it just reminds me of something else you said in the article. The metaphor I really liked was this idea of metabolism of the organization, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, this idea that somehow I'm sort of churning <laughs> through decisions. Well, well, I'm glad you say that because, again, if you go back in the literature, certainly the literature when, when I was first getting involved with organizational work, a lot of the metaphors were mechanical. You know, it was, and you, you mentioned engineers earlier. Um, and I've worked a lot with engineering companies, and obviously they're particularly oriented. To this, but the idea implicitly, nobody would ever say it this way, is you sort of design the perfect machine, organizational machine, and then you kind of flick a switch and bang, it just works again and again. But it isn't like that, right? Being human is not like that. And, and humans are what make organizations work or not. And so a, a biological metaphor, you know, we think is much more appropriate than a mechanical metaphor for organizations. And, bi you know, biology. I guess one of the great things about my limited understanding of evolution is it only works because it's because it's imperfect, you know, because there is variation. If it was a perfect replication every time, there would be no evolution. Um, and, and organizations are like that. You you know, you want to get it well functioning and repeating the majority of the time, but things don't always go the way you expected. And mm. and and um, and in many ways, that's that is how organizations evolve. You know, when when they when they find um, the context has shifted and, and, and the organization itself needs to adapt. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I like, I like that. And I, I just, I'm imagining, well, two, two reflections actually on what you've just said. One is that I, I, what I reflect on when I see some of, as you talked about the Agile revolution earlier, I see a lot of the discussions in those are not necessarily using more organic metaphors and, and a lot of the diagrams and the way that these things are described right. feel like we're still in an engineering metaphor yeah. style of world. So yeah. that was the first Machine reflection. age. Yeah, exactly. It's just the, the agile version of that. Uh, but, but the second thing is, again, about this idea of metabolism. The thing that came to mind was digestion, right? I mean, that's sort of closely associated yeah. with metabolism. And this idea that we... we it allows us to kind of move, you know, digest this <laughs> yes. energy. Of, the decision flow is like the, our, our digestion of 
Of, we, of, we once came up with the 10 common pitfalls or whatever it was um, that get in the way of uh, decision effectiveness and uh, decision constipation was high up with right. us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because organizations just collapse under their own weight. There's so much information and there's so much pressure to consult so many people that you just end up paralyzed. Yeah. <clears throat> Constipate. Yeah, I've been in a lot of situations where the, yeah. it is constipation would have been a better. But but I suppose because and certainly because my my background is an electronic engineer. Uh -huh. Sometimes it, I suppose it's because I come from that. I you know I see the value of the of the other, which is this. Well, my background is I was an English major. Okay. And so I've always been interested in the in the kind of human side, you could say. Mm. You know. <clears throat> yeah. But but it would be interesting if if this became and I think this is the way it's going. This became more of the way that we describe our business context is using these these more organic me metaphors, right? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah. Um, okay. Well, it feels like we've given the the model a really good um, tour, and we've come come to understand how some of this is reflected within Bain as well as some of the other aspects you've discussed. Is there anything else to share in terms of the insights or the stories with, with clients about how we achieve greater metabolism within organizations before we close? Or? Oh gosh, what haven't I covered? I mean, um, there are probably two things. So one is we are, it's left brain, right brain, right? you need both. So we. For decisions of any significance or complexity, we are strong believers that you do have to go out and get the facts. And in today's world, you know, today's big data world, there's more opportunity to do analysis than ever. And that, and that in itself can be overwhelming. But, you know, decisions, evidence-based decisions are generally going to win over intuition-based decisions. Okay, there are exceptions, but, you know, as a rule. Um, that's point one. And then point two is the being human. You know, the, one of the reasons I was intrigued to come along and, and meet you is, is the whole being human sort of framing is spot on from my experience, from our experience. Because the, the facts and the analysis and the, and the design part only takes you so far. And in order for it to be effective, you have to embrace the, you know, the wonderful complexity of the human condition. Um, and what it means to be human. But also what we find is a big benefit. When, when you improve decision effectiveness, two things happen, and people tend to focus on the first, but given the, the title of, of this series, I, I'm gonna argue that the second is at least as important. So the first thing is decisions get better, they speed up, they get better executed, guess what, the business does better. But the second thing is it becomes a much more energizing place to work. Oh. Yeah. Which is probably why this lady <laughs> who referenced your article. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I must admit, I'm flattered that that was the connection. I, I don't know the lady, I yeah, confess. Nikki yeah, Nikki Gettinger, yeah, I can. But uh, yeah, because I mean, I've been to visit their their, their places in Brighton. I'm now intrigued to come visit Bain and see what the feel is within Bain of All what right. you described. But All certainly right. in Brighton, you, you've, you, um, it's Propellinet is the name of the company. You you feel the energy in the place. I mean, it's yeah. just yeah, and that's you're just in live and you know everyone you wins, right? It's it's much more fun to be part of an organization yeah. like that, and of course it's, the organization does better. I mean, it's yeah. just <laughs> I mean, these I guys are flying. They're one of the most powerful yeah. marketing yeah, yeah. agencies in Europe, and you know they're, they're doing brilliantly well. And yeah, I it's it's on the one hand it's so simple to think through this lens, but yeah, it's such a powerful. But it's, the rapid alone is only the first yeah. step, right? So so again the. Um, 
you know, unlocking what one of my other clients called discretionary energy is obviously great for the business, right? If people are coming to work motivated and wanting to give their best, of course they're going to do a better job than if they're coming with their kind of spirit crushed. Um, providing clarity on what their role is and, and not just some kind of document with a bunch of bullet points, but what decisions they are supposed to get involved in and what role they're supposed to play in those decisions is it can be very powerful in a world where that might not have been clear previously to creating part of the environment for them to feel that kind of energy and passion because now they're accountable for something they've got. So, so long as they're so long as they want to be accountable for something, um, which is a somewhat different issue, then then that's a huge step. And then and then, like I said, though the rest of the organisation, what we call the integrated organisational system, the the other elements, need to be reinforcing and allowing them to exercise that, whatever that empowerment yeah. is, in a in a constructive way that that doesn't sort of mean, mean they're having clashes the whole time with other other parts of the organization. So clarifying the roles is a really important step, but it's not the only, it's not the end of the story usually. Yeah, not the end of the story, but yeah, really important. Again, yeah. the other thing I, it, that reminds me of is, uh, I don't know if you come across um, Handelsbanken. I have they're not. Very, very, you know, so they're a Nordic bank, yes. um, but again, very clear decision making. And you talk in the article about this, the balance between uh, global and local. Right. So they push a lot of the decisions down to local, but right. they keep a lot centrally, right? Yeah. Or they keep well, a, a the proportion. Hour, that's the hourglass, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about their organization is they don't have, you know, we talk a lot about purpose driven organizations. They don't appear, at least, to have some sort of grand purpose so much you know and their mission is to be more profitable than than their than, than the, their closest competitor you know they they're quite kind of bland in terms of the mission statements but i think what gives that place such energy is again this this fact that people are are highly empowered it's very clear each of the local branch branch branches have this direct relationship with their customers and they're empowered to market with them and build relationships right. as they see fit. Yes. And and so what they're doing is they're they're unlocking all this discretionary energy as you say without yes. the, the yes. without no, the mission, sort of grand I, statements on the Well, you, you on have the wall. I mean I think missions purpose driven organizations is a hugely powerful topic. Um, and and it, and again it's one of the it's one of the 10 dimensions mm. for us of a, the integrated organizational system. So you can have an effective organization without it, but it's a very powerful way, especially in a, a more decentralized world of, of kind of creating some cohesion and some common identity. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, so if you have it, great. If you don't have it, you know, there are other ways of skinning the organizational <laughs> cat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> exactly. No. Yeah. Great, well maybe that's the... All right. Well, a great pleasure to meet you. No, it's a great thank pleasure you. to meet you, and thank you so much. I, All right. I do hope you get a lot from this conversation. Thank you. Take care. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.